Hello, dear listeners, and especially those of you writing or working on personal stories or memoir, because I am launching a new six-week craft course with Linda Joy Myers that kicks off on September 18th. This course is called Craft Essentials, and we're doing this craft intensive at the request of so many of our students who are looking for deeper dives into different kinds of topics. So I invite anyone interested to check out our site, magicofmemoir.com to see the very interesting and nuanced topics we're covering this time around. And we have our usual all-star teacher roster, which includes Janet Fitch, Rebecca Carroll, Janine Ouellette, and EJ Co. I always learn so much from these classes myself, despite how already immersed I am in memoir. Uh, and we have an add-on this time around of a book proposal class, which we'll be bringing in agents for. We'll be supporting authors to think about what matters when it comes to shopping their books. Lots of good stuff here. So please check out the details. Again, that is magicofmemoir.com. And now on to the show. Hello, truth tellers, memory miners, and story slingers. You may have noticed if you've listened to the announcement at the top of this week's show that both of our guests featured in today's best of mashup are going to be teaching in my fall craft essentials course. So yes, this is by design that they're paired up. Rebecca Carroll and Janine Ouellette are both memoirists who've written coming of age books, which also extend into adulthood, into motherhood, and explore the strong roots that inform who and what we become. And I was so impressed and deeply moved by both of these memoirs this year, Grant, uh, two of my favorites that became the impetus to invite them to teach for me. And honestly, that's one of the great gifts of the work I do, you know, that you and me get to interact with these authors that we admire. And then, you know, if and when it makes sense, I'll sometimes invite them to teach my courses. And it's so much fun. Yeah, it's such an unexpected job perk you know we often get to go directly to the source uh when there's an interesting book that comes out and you know there's just something very special about being able to talk with with authors directly and get to know them even if just a little bit and i'm still often kind of starstruck brooke you know like who am i to be talking to these published authors <laughs> what did you most love about these two guests books brooke I really did love both of these books. And I think it's because I'm working on my own memoir and I'm taking things in differently than I did before. I mean, I've always loved memoir, of course, but I've taken in memoir previously through the lens of being an editor and a teacher or a publisher. Uh, and so it's not all that unusual for me to apply a more critical eye. Uh, but now I see like I'm paying attention to structure and how writers break or bend the rules, how they experiment, you know, things that I've always loved, but now I'm kind of like, hmm, how could I do this? Or what do I want to do? And that really does feel different. Uh, and so Janine's book is definitely more experimental, for instance. Uh, it's a compilation of essays as memoir, uh, memoir and essays. And so its structure is unique. Uh, and that's what I loved about it. It made me think and then like really take in this different way of narrating that was super enjoyable. Uh, the jacket copy actually describes best what she's attempting to do or did do, uh, saying that the work is told in fragments of her life and arranged elliptically to witness each piece as torn 
and whole, something more than itself. So I really like that. And then as far as Rebecca's goes, uh, the thing that I liked here, um, I mean, she definitely also made me think, you know, she grapples with some really intense topics in her book because she's a biracial adoptee raised by white parents. And then what she's doing in her memoir is uh, just like unpacking all of that, you know, and and so there's a lot of story there. Uh, but from a craft perspective, I truly enjoyed her descriptiveness, uh, how she wove her story, the way she characterized. She does a lot of things really well. And so it's a good study for memoirists who are writing with a lot of story in mind. And it's fairly linear, which is how most memoirists tell their story. And so therefore, it gives people a chance to look at at the surrounding elements that she really has mastered. Uh, and, and sometimes it's good to do that when you don't have to pay too much attention to a more complicated structure. So in, in that case, you know, or for that very reason, both of these are really great studies. Definitely. And that's another one of our job perks. You know, we get to read books we want to read and then bring these authors on the show. And I think, Brooke, we should just keep kind of talking about our job perks. I know that listeners just want to <laughs> keep hearing about the enjoyment we get, but I, I enjoyed both of these authors so much and I'm happy we're bringing them back uh, as two exemplars of the genre. Well, me too. And, and that's right. I mean, maybe we're bragging about all the job perks, but I will say that there is something really delightful about being moved and excited to talk to these people and this little, you know, tidbit of truth that we are often so starstruck. And I think that shows and, you know, we're honoring these guests so much and so in love with the idea of bringing them to all of you. Uh, so we hope that you love these highlights from our interviews with the wonderful Rebecca Carroll and Janine Ouellette. We'll see you after the interviews. Today's guest is Rebecca Carroll, a writer, cultural critic, and host of the podcasts Come Through with Rebecca Carroll, 15 Essential Conversations About Race in a Pivotal Year for America, and Billy Was a Black Woman, a companion podcast to the 2021 film The United States versus Billie Holiday. She's also the creator and curator of the live events and audio series In Love and Struggles, which shares the lives and experiences of Black women in America through monologues, stories, music, and humor. Her writing has been widely published in the New York Times, The Atlantic, Atlantic, Essence, and Elsewhere. She's the author of several interview-based books about race in America and the recent critically acclaimed memoir, Surviving the White Gaze. Rebecca, welcome. Thank you so much for having me. We're absolutely thrilled to have you. And you and your book have been on my radar for a while, and I had the great privilege of seeing you on a panel recently at the Woodstock Book Festival. And now, thankfully and gratefully, I've read your recent memoir, Surviving the White Gaze, which I absolutely loved. So thank you for writing it. Thank you for reading it. <laughs> yes. So let me ask you about writing about your various families and about the considerations and costs, because we have a lot of writers who listen to the show, uh, writers of memoir and personal narrative. And Many, many, many people, as you probably know, are worried about what their people are going to think and how they're going to react. So what considerations were there for you or costs that you might be willing to share here about writing about family with such honesty? Well, the first thing um, that I will say is that I waited a very long time to write this memoir. And I waited until I felt that I had the emotional fortitude um, and an adequate sense of self and self-awareness. Um, a, a sense of grounding in my experience so that I could be honest, so that I could be 
radically compassionate and and really and this is you know something i did not anticipate um i thought it would be received by particularly my adoptive family you know my birth mother is is deeply problematic and i didn't anticipate being in touch with her at all about it but i did think that my adoptive family would receive it uh, more openly and more um graciously and you know they they didn't. <laughs> mm-hmm. I remember when I was, you know, writing it and um, sending out for blurbs and Rebe- Rebecca Traster, the great Rebecca Traster said to me, she said, I just want to make sure that you know what is at stake here. And, you know, she, and, and she meant it filled with empathy and compassion. And then I said, I, I do, I do know what's at stake. And it is, it is my gift to my family. And it is my um, my, my right as someone who has survived and gone on to succeed and self-create. And so, you know, I wasn't worried. Mm. I really wasn't. I mean, I, I certainly, um, I planned for it in that I lined up a therapist. (laughs) I definitely knew that there would be a response that needed to be processed but I, did, I, could, I would never have anticipated that my father would stop speaking to me, that my brother would stop speaking to me, that, um, you know, that essentially, uh, and I'm borrowing this term from Nicole Chung, who, who recent, her, whose recent memoir is um, about losing her parents, and she said it felt like being unadopted. And that's sort of what it feels like, um, their response. So that's, you know, now it's more... Um, just sort of figuring out what that means and what the, what the, the consequences, uh, how that, how I can weave that into my sense of self and not feel regret. Well, Rebecca, I'm also curious about the family that you write less about, and that's your own nuclear family. And, and you write at the end of your book about meeting your husband and having your son, but you just mainly touch on the fact that that happens. So I'm curious about what considerations that you had in terms of, you know, how, what you wrote about, about your life before them would impact them now, especially your son or now and in, in the future. Well, my son read it, um, when it first came out. Uh, so that would have been in 2021. So he was 15, um, at the time and he's a boy of, of fewish words, depending <laughs> upon what he's talking about. Um, but, but he said he thought it was very, very good. And, I think that what that meant was he was proud of me, um, but I don't think in, he is able to understand it in, in, in really on any you know deep level. Um, but what I hope is that it will inform him when we have sort of certain kinds of arguments or conversations in which I am trying to explain to him, I did not have a black parent. So this is my first time. You know, this is my first time being a black parent or, or, you know, trying to figure out what that means to you as a black boy. And, you know, the, because of, of the nature of what I do and what I write about and what I'm involved in, you know, there's all sorts of things that he has, you know, questions about in terms of, you know, just for example, following all of the spate of murders, of course, you know, the racial reckoning and defunding the police and, you know, what are black and black lives matter. And what are all of these, what do these things mean? And I have to think 
in two different ways. Like I think about what would I have wanted my black parent, if I had a parent, black parent, say to me about these things? What would I have wanted my white parents to say to me about these things? And what do I feel I want to say to my child about these things? And I can't get past those layers. And that's sort of, that is what, you know, my adoption has wrought. Right. And oh my gosh, it just speaks to the multi-layeredness in your book. And one of the things that you write about is the struggle of being seen and not seen, a, a paradox to be sure. Like you're too seen for your blackness on the one hand and then not seen enough or invisibilized. So I was struck by how those two things coexisted for you. And so much so that I actually thought about it for days after I finished reading your book. And I was just wondering if you could tell us more about the experience of that paradox and how you think about it or how you experienced it growing up. And whether you continue to experience it now? Well, I think along the lines of paradox, you know, I because abandonment is my central trauma, that means that my baseline existence comes with a deeply, profoundly internalized sense of insecurity. So that means, you know, fear of abandonment, fear of being left behind, of not being good enough, you know, of being complicit in my own gaslighting, of you know, susceptibility to imposter syndrome, you know, it also means that I like attention and I'm mindful about what I'll do to get that attention, which I think was, which I, which I was able to sort of lay out in some ways in the book, you know, in terms of knowing that I was going to get out of that town and that I had to employ a certain level of, of strategy and ambition which included, you know, in the sixth grade lying about, you know, going to that boy's house and it earned me a seat at the table, you know, moving on up. And I was just cognizant of that and of that sort of dichotomy and that paradox of, you know, of having to pedal fast while also feeling like, not that I deserved, but that I was perfectly fine the way I was. So, all of the kind of the, the navigating the strategy and the insecurity that was sort of fueling it feels and felt totally counterintuitive to me, right? Which is to say, I often felt and feel like a confident person trapped inside an insecure person's body, but there's like this constant battle with what I think is my innately confident self and the insecurity <laughs> brought by the trauma of my adoption. And so when, when you then add race into that equation, things get, you know, significantly more complex and painful. Right. And I, so I feel like I, I feel like the living or consequences incarnate of what the national association of black social workers was warning against then very controversial statement that they issued in 1972, um, I mean, it's just so bizarre because to, to read it now, um, and I wrote this down among other things they say, was that black children in white homes are cut off from the healthy development of themselves as black people. Only a black family can transmit the emotional and sensitive subtleties of perception for a black child's survival in a racist society. And so I don't feel like I had a healthy development of myself as a black person. Not only you know did I have to navigate systemic racism, but I was just bombarded by whiteness at every turn. And so, you know, this goes back to what I was saying about trauma and the strategies I had to employ to endure it. And so that meant also to your, specifically to your question, Brooke, that, you know, I had to 
I had to not just be the subject of people's choices of when to see me and when to not see me, but I had to also figure out how to behave in those instances, you know, and, and a lot of this took place before I was even 16 years old or 17 years old. You know, I look at my son now and I think, oh my God, what on earth? Good for you, little Rebecca. <laughs> well, Rebecca, your, your memoir is a type of case study of white privilege and, and there are two different versions of it. You know, there's, there's the benign version of that with your adopted parents and then the more malignant version of that with your birth mother. And it's, it's stark and arresting, but not heavy handed. And it felt like you struck an important balance there. Um, and we've, we've interviewed black authors on this show who've talked about not writing for the white gaze and the freedom they've experienced in writing for a black audience. So, so I'm curious how you approach this book and whether you knew you'd have such a big white readership and how that might've affected your characterization of privilege and racism as a result. Uh, well, it's really, um, that's a great question because it's bittersweet, right? Which is that when you said, it was kind of triggering when you said, did you anticipate having such a white, such a large white audience? Um, and I think of the, the blurbs that I got and I've, and I've talked about this before. Um, but the, the, the sheer fact of, of Kiese Lehman or, um, you know, Roxanne Gay supporting my work and this story is something that my white parents can't possibly understand because they don't read these writers, which is, you know, sort of somehow speaks to the, you know, the conflict um, or the con sort of the conflicting goal of this book, which is it sort of makes me cringe to think that I have a, a large white um, readership because in some ways that makes me feel less like a black writer because in fact, the title comes from Toni Morrison, uh, who I saw when I was working on the Charlie Rose show, explain the white gaze for the first time. I heard it for the first time when I was in my late twenties. And, um, and that was the first time I understood what I had endured and what I had survived and I had language for it. And so, you know, it feels very, um, again, <laughs> paradoxical and, um, and kind of, uh, a kind of painful because truthfully, you know, as much as I wanted for my parents and my adoptive family to read it and to receive it, um, as a very personal gift. I'm much more interested in it reaching, you know, black and brown transracial adoptees and, um, uh, mixed and black folks. And, and that has, you know, I have received, um, a ton of feedback from that particular audience. That's more gratifying to me. Frankly, I don't, I don't necessarily trust that white audiences will do anything with this information. You know, it's sort of like the racial reckoning, right? It's sort of like, how's that going? <laughs> you know, what, where, what is the evidence that there, that that was even serious? Um, and so there have been a lot of white parents of adopt of, of black children who have reached out and said it's really profoundly affected them. But, you know, I, I don't, I don't know that I really trust that. 
particularly given that it is the dynamic of transracial adoption, particularly with black children, is a microcosm of America. You know, it is still white people setting the standards of beauty, of education, of, of moral behavior, of, of language, um, making choices for black people. Well, it's a good segue, Rebecca, because you mentioned Nicole Chung earlier, and I'm going to be interviewing her at the Bay Area Book Festival. And um, so I've read her book and on the heels of reading uh, yours, you know, or or just previous to. And what's complex is the (laughs) well-meaningness, you know, of both sets of white families. And growing up, I knew a fair number of kids of color who had been adopted by white families. And so the question I have for you, given everything you just said, and, and I have zero agenda here, I'm genuinely curious, like, can it be done well? Can white families adopt kids of color well? And do you hope that your memoir, you know, would support those families to think differently and be more conscientious? Or do you hope that your memoir would discourage them from from doing it? Yeah, I get asked that question a lot. And I do, I, you know, I do think it can be done well. I, I, what I think is really important is that there be, you know, an inordinate amount of, of self-reflection and, um, of, of consideration. You know, you mentioned the well-meaning aspect of it. It, it, what does that even have to do with anything? Like the well-meaning of it is so irrelevant and the love of it is, you know, I mean, obviously you don't want unloving parents of any child, but, but I think the things that I have said is that if you don't have black friends or black community before you think about adopting a black child, what are you doing thinking about adopting a black child? That's the first thing, you know, I mean, it's like, it's like, my husband, you know, we met and on the subway and he was on his way to a conference on race and social policy. I was like, what? I did not even know that white people existed. Such white people existed, right? Like it, it wasn't a big deal. He wasn't looking for a cookie. He wasn't, you know, he wasn't saying, well, I've, and I've also got a ton of black friends. He was conversant. It was, it was just normal. He had black folks in his life and you could tell, <laughs> you know? So I, I think I think it's just, it's a very, very tender, tender issue. And at the moment, I feel so discouraged um, by the way that that systemic racism continues to um, triumph that I, I, I'm just, I would be reluctant to encourage transracial adoption, but I don't want to discourage evolution. Well, Rebecca, we, we love to, to celebrate memoirists on this show because it's so brave, obviously, to pour over some of the hardest details of your life and, and make sense of them for a broader readership. And I think Brooke and I were both struck by the by the nuance with which you write about all your parents. And, you know, there's a lot of love there. There's a roller coaster of emotion. There's blindness and manipulation and confrontations and disappointments. And some of what you write about is universal, of course. But some of it is unique to your story. And so I'm curious, what advice do you have for aspiring memoirists who have similarly complex dynamics with parents? And what would you say to people who feel terrified to write the whole truth, which is a lot of us? (laughs) I would say be very, very clear that you're ready. Be very, very clear that you have a through line and that you're not just going to, you know, throw these memories um, on the on the page. 
um, my, uh, you know, the sort of the thing that, that gave, that freed me up the most was that I decided that only memories, experiences, anecdotes that had to do directly with surviving the white gaze would, would be in the book. And as soon as I found that that was the through line, you know, I mean, I could have written about my, my, my friendship with Leah, you know, which started when we were babies. I mean, I could have given that a whole entire book, you know, there were all sorts of things that I could have written about, but I didn't, but surviving the white gaze was not a problem was not a part of my friendship with Leo with whom I'm still friends this day to this day. So I, my, my, the biggest note is find the through line. It's not just an autobiography. It's not just diary uh, uh, excerpts or entries. Um, it's finding a real narrative arc. It is, it is a incredibly challenging um, craft and skill. And it is not just a reflection on what you have, what you have experienced or, or, you know, what you felt when you were a kid. Um, that was the most challenging and also the most freeing for me. But, but the other thing, uh, equally as important that I, that I started with is just to, to be ready to, to have the, the, the wisdom and the clarity that you'll need because, and this is a full circle moment, bringing us back to the beginning, which is writing about family, you know, so long as you have the emotional fortitude and the clarity of excavating your experience and the integrity, then it makes it somewhat easier to deal with however your family responds. Today's guest is Janine Olette, the author of the memoir, The Part That Burns. She also has a children's book, Mama Moon, and she's written several educational titles. Her stories and essays have appeared widely, and she's the recipient of multiple awards and prizes, including two recent Pushcart nominations. Janine teaches creative writing at the Minnesota Prison Writing Workshop and is the founder and director of Elephant Rock, an independent creative writing program in Minneapolis. She earned her MFA in fiction from Vermont. Vermont College of the Fine Arts. She's currently working on her first novel. Janine, welcome. Thank you. I'm so happy to be here. Thank you for having me. I'm thrilled to have you. And I want to start with some questions about the structure of your memoir. It's beautiful, by the way. So so thank you. And it's described by others as a lot of different things. Some have said it's fragmented. Uh, sometimes people call the chapters essays. It's also been said they're vignettes. Uh, you sometimes write in the past and present tense throughout the book. You organize the book into different sections. And I noticed like clumping chapters into sections at different times that revolve around dogs you had growing up. And then uh, the middle part of the book has more traditional chapters, but you're experimenting and you're rule breaking, playing with subheads. And so, you know, as a person who's obsessed with structure myself, I was really curious to know more about your organizing principle. And, you know, how did you put this thing together? Was it organic or was it highly orchestrated? That That's a wonderful question. And it's always the hardest one for me to answer because it's a little bit of all of that. Mm-hmm. So I think the the most honest way for me to talk about that is to describe what the book's DNA is, how it came to be, which is that I entered into Vermont College of Fine Arts, VCFA, um, 
to study fiction. I was working on a novel. And in fact, and this is a long story I won't get into telling, that's the novel that I'm working to complete right now. While I was doing that, I was simultaneously working on these memoir pieces. And part of my motivation for doing that was, you know, I think a lot of people in the MFA program feel like I need to be building up my CV. I want to have a really nice track record of publication when I leave here. At least that for me, that was really important. And so I, you know, I, I, the novel material wasn't ready for that. So I was working on these other things and sending them out and they were, um, they were really being well received. So, you know, it's the memoir work that got the pushcart nominations. They were, you know, placing in contests and winning some contests. And so about halfway through my program, I realized, I think I'm making a book. I think I'm making a different book. And so I switched, you know, I switched my creative thesis halfway through and I started working on this material and finished it by the time I left the program in a way that doesn't bear a lot of resemblance to what it eventually became. But I did, I did, I did try a couple of times sending that out and I got some really positive feedback from agents it was very fragmented. It was a, it was essentially the structure at that time was vignettes. They were mostly much shorter than what's in the current published version. And they were in largely chronological order. So if you imagine the book as it currently exists, and then imagine going in and, you know, I like to think like, in more old school terms, because I'm old enough to have done this, but where you actually go in and cut it up with a scissors and then take, you know, all of the scenes and, and stretch them out into, yeah, small vignettes that were largely chronological. That's kind of what it looked like. But agents told me that, you know, they weren't really, you know, it was experimental and they weren't really sure how to, that they could market it. That's a, you know, we hear that all the time. Mm-hmm. <laughs> And that it would be really interesting. And, you know, I had a few tell me, I'd love to, you know, see either another project or, you know, if this had a a stronger narrative arc. So I went back to the drawing board and then I rewrote the whole thing as a novel. (laughs) And I just, I think, you know, there were a lot of reasons for that that weren't didn't have anything to do with structure or sales or marketing. And in part, it's difficult material. And I think I was kind of leaping at the chance and the idea of maybe what if I didn't actually have to face all of the complications of publishing this as a memoir. And so I did that. I rewrote it as a novel. Um, And, you know, it, it didn't not work. That version of the manuscript was a finalist in the autumn house novel contest. I think that was 2018. So like it did have some, you know, it did have some oomph. Like I think it could possibly have worked, but, but at that time I just realized that a couple of things happened and and then I'll get to the end of this answer, <laughs> but this is the hardest question to answer. I, I went to, a, I, I was at a Tin House winter workshop working with Dorothy Allison, who's one of my literary icons. And 
I was workshopping the chapter Four Dogs, maybe five. It was a very different version of it. But Dorothy really loved that chapter. That's how I ended up getting, you know, a blurb from her for the book. And and when I had my individual meeting with her, she said, you know, this is a book. And I said, well, I mean, I don't, you know, I feel like it is, but I've been publishing these standalone pieces. And she said, that's how it works. That's what I did with Bastard. That's exactly how it works. That's what you you know, you, you just figure out how to put them together and there's your book. And it was so empowering. It was very freeing and very empowering. And so I, I kind of returned to that and I took the pieces that had existed, the pre-existing and, you know, previously published pieces. And I, and then I have, I wrote new pieces. I wrote connective tissue and I had to do some pretty heavy revision to make sure that whatever repetition remained was intentional, was on purpose and was creating the right kind of foreshadowing and echoing and, you know, pointing toward transformation. So there was still a lot of work to be done, but that's what I did. And as soon as I submitted that version of the manuscript, like within a couple of months, I had the offer for publication. Wow, Janine, thank you so much for sharing that story of your journey. It was fascinating on several different levels. And I personally related to, I guess, different chapters <laughs> within that. <laughs> I've had the same reception for, for work that I've uh, put out there. And uh, it seems like, you know, you've obviously made so many different storytelling decisions in the course of that journey. And I just wanted to zero in on Brooke's question about tense because Lots of writers struggle with what tends to write in, but memoirists, you know, maybe more so than other writers. And I've heard a lot of memoirists say that present tense helps them to access their emotions better, but it's also difficult to carry an entire book in present tense. I've never been able to do it, but you do both. And I'm, I'm, I'm curious what you can share with our listeners about tense and what do you say to the writers you work with when they're struggling uh, with, you know, what's the better tense to write their work? I love that question because no one's ever asked me before and I think full transparent disclosure would be that part of the reason that I permitted myself to use both past and present tense in the manuscript is because it was in the DNA of the original pieces, despite that it's unconventional to do that in a book-length work. Although um, Abigail Thomas does that really successfully in Safekeeping which is also a, you know, a fragmented and non-traditional memoir. I think for me that when I think about the decisions that we make, so much is about cost and benefit analysis. So what do you gain and what do you lose? And with present tense, I think that if we were to look at the manuscript or look at the book, present tense is primarily used when I'm, presenting a child narrator. So in, in that way, present tense is something of a constraint. The child narrator is limited in a sense to what she can know and perceive in that given moment. Present tense puts some breaks on the reflective voice you know, it, it doesn't eliminate it. It doesn't make it impossible to reflect, but it certainly puts the brakes on slipping into the reflective voice accidentally, which I think, you know, is problematic. And 
because of, again, because of the kind of material that I was working with, for me, that child narrator was really key to the success of the project because she's able to present some experiences and some events that are really difficult. A lot of people, um, you know, can just say this, you know, on the podcast to listeners that the book does deal with childhood sexual abuse. And it's absolutely true and fair that there are readers out there who are going to say, I just can't even pick up a book that would deal with that topic. I don't want to read about that. And so, you know, for me to be able to write what my, what my hope was, was despite the fact that the book deals with a difficult topic of abuse in its aftermath, that if I could successfully present that in a way that was beautiful and that was really respectful of a reader's, um, to, to not hand someone a box of darkness is the way I like to think about it, but rather to really take it very seriously that I'm, making art out of something. And so that present tense child narrator was a, was a really conscious choice um, to be able to work with material in a way that would make it yeah, safe and um, to, to make it a journey that someone might actually want to take and get to the end and say, you know, I wouldn't necessarily obviously wish those experiences on anyone, but I'm glad that I got to be a companion on this journey. Thanks for that, Janine. And, you know, another thing you do that I find interesting in the book is how you work with time and how you're very directive with time somehow um, <laughs> that works in a way that I just haven't seen other memoirs pull off very well. So uh, you pull into the future, which is something that I try to teach my own memoir students to do, you know, to stay anchored in where you are. And at the same time, if you want to like show what hasn't happened yet, that there's a good way to do that. And so I thought it would be helpful for you to read a little passage that I had uh asked you or sent you about because you write this early in the book and you clearly let the reader know that you're four years old and then you write this little section. So could you read that? And then I will uh, ask the rest of the question. Absolutely. Like I said, it's fall, not winter. And I am four years old. We are in the greenhouse on the steepest hill, the house before we moved to the gray one on 24th Avenue. At the Gray House, we will have a corner store with a dusty wood floor and penny candy and a screen door that bangs. Mama will let me walk to the store by myself because I will be five and then almost six. At the Gray House, we will get a braided rug and some macrame plant holders. Rachel will be born. She will be half of my sister. I will learn to rock her when she cries because her crib will be in my room. I will learn to wring out her dirty diapers in the toilet. It doesn't stink when you love someone enough, Mama will say. I will try to love Rachel more. But all of that is in the next house. On this night, in the greenhouse on the steepest hill, a little dog barks outside our door, and Mama opens it to let him in. 
Thank you for reading that. And, you know, I chose that section because there are actually a lot like it in the book to showcase how you pull forward in time and how you make use of the future tense to talk about things that haven't happened yet. And it also really anchors the reader uh, about where exactly you are and where you're going to be. So could you talk about guiding the reader in that way and how you think about time management when you write? Well, I, I want to think about, I want to parse out that question and maybe take the second part first. Um, I'm, I'm currently obsessed with time management and I, I don't think that was as true when I was working on the memoir, but I don't doubt that the experience of working in a really unconventional way with time is a part of how I became obsessed with time management and became more just increasingly aware of it and the impact that it has in a work, which also comes from, you talked about your memoir students, and I'm sure you feel similarly. I learn so much from working with their work and working with manuscripts. And so I think that because I, because I was working in a non-chronological way from the start, um, like I said, there was a, there was a moment when the manuscript became more chronological, but that was reverse engineered. The actual building of it was always non-chronological. And I think that, you know, one of the ways that I like to think about this issue is that what are the, what are we asking of the reader? What demands am I making on the reader? So this isn't, you know, dissimilar to the idea of the present tense, except that was like demands in the emotional realm. And in this case, it's sort of the attentional realm. What am I asking of the reader in order to be able to, to follow me? And whenever we're playing around with time and moving through time in an in a non-chronological way, we're placing a higher burden on the reader, just undoubtedly, unequivocally, we're asking more. Human beings um, expect things, you know, to, to move from beginning, middle to end. It, we're extremely temporal. And so, um, yeah, so just being aware um, of the fact that I was placing an additional demand on the reader, I think raised the stakes for me in terms of clarity of time and wanting to assure that, that the reader, despite the fact that I was um, not moving in a straight line, that the reader would be able to stay with me. So I think that's, that's the answer to the first part, or that's my attempt to answer that first part about time management is just that I, I think it's an imperative. Yeah. That we have as, as, not just memoirists, but writers, if we're telling a story, just to ensure that the reader knows where they are in time and why. Um, and I think that with regard to zooming into the future, um, your question about that, I think that, I mean, in this passage that you had me read out loud, what what I'm trying to establish there really early on is the itinerant nature of this child's life, that at, even at this young age, she's organizing time by which house she lived in. And so, you know, the narrator in the scene is for, so I have this way of thinking about narration and time. And it, I like to think, and I've been clarifying this, so this is a work in progress, but you have your protagonist, and so the protagonist in this scene is four. And then there's the narrator, 
And the narrator in this scene can't actually be exactly four because she knows about something that happens in the future. But she is narrating from a point in time very close to the age of the protagonist. She's a child narrator, so and she's speaking in a childlike voice. So she's she's narrating in close proximity to the to the protagonist. And then there's us as the writer. And we, of course, and this is specific to memoir, but novel writing too, I think, because you know, once we kind of know what's gonna happen, we know more than the narrator or the protagonist. And so I, I feel like being able to very purposefully control that dial, it gives us, it's a superpower. When you're really aware of that, I call it the gap. I tried to do a video about this on my Patreon, but this idea of really closing that gap or opening it and doing it on purpose, really being clear about it. A lot of it has to do with what we're, what we're willing to reveal and what we're withholding and why based on what effect it's going to create. And so like in this case, like I said, the effect that I think I was hoping to create is to at least subtly give a reader a sense of, you know, the way this child thinks in terms of her life organized by different places that, that she lives and what will happen in each of those places. So that was the benefit of revealing something that would happen in the future in this moment, rather than waiting until it's actually happening. You've been on my radar for a really long time, but then one of my friends sent me the piece that you wrote called 11, and, uh, 11 Urgent and Possibly Helpful Things I Have Learned About Writing from Reading Thousands of Manuscripts. And I loved it. And then I was like, oh my gosh, we have to get her on the show, you know, after all these months that you had been on my radar. And so I wanted to just ask you about that piece. I loved the section in particular about aboutness. Uh, you wrote, aboutness is the middle ground between those broader, deep themes and what happens or plot of your piece. Aboutness is what we need to pin down when writing jacket copy. Aboutness is related to the point of view character and what she wants and the misbeliefs that get in the way of her getting it. And and you go on and it's great. Everyone will, needs to read it. I'll send, I'll put a link in the show notes. Um, aboutness is so little taught, you know, it's importance, why writers have to think about it. Um, and you write about it really elegantly. So could you talk about how this came up as one of the 11 urgent things you wanted to share with your readers? Uh, yes. Okay. So two mainstreams that fed into that one is that I teach a workshop that I've been teaching since the very beginning of the pandemic, like the first thing I did when we went into lockdown in Minnesota and I had to cancel everything like we all did is start a virtual workshop, which was really just for the purpose of a lifeline, you know, for myself and, and anyone else who was feeling terrified of what was happening and what was coming toward us. And I called that workshop writing in the dark. And what we did then, and it's obviously it's evolved and refined since the beginning, but it's always been based on a close reading of a short work and that and a writing exercise. And then a, a piece that's evolved over time is flash workshops for participants. And one of the ways that I've found to be really helpful when you're when you're talking when you're doing a, cl a pretty fast close reading, it's a two hour workshop, so that's a lot to fit into two hours. And when you're 
wanting it to be valuable, which is really important to me. It's like, how can we talk about this piece in ways that are not subjective and actually learn from it, like really dig into the craft of it. And I find that talking about aboutness is a wonderful portal toward that. So, um, and, and it's really interesting, Brooke, like what it reveals in terms of what, what we tend to assume, like you just sit around and you can talk about a piece and you assume that everyone is thinking that the same thing happens and it's about the same thing, but that's not true at all. Um, when you actually talk about that in a group. And so, um, yeah, so it's, and then, and then that allows you to really look at what has the writer done? Like, what did this writer do to create this effect? So that's what we do in the workshop. And we do that with each other's work as well, which reveals a lot to the writer. It's much more, um, in terms of what the writer can take away and, you know, take action on is really substantial compared to maybe just hearing what worked for people or what didn't work because, and and I think George Saunders from what I've learned from his, um, swim in the pond in the rain and also his Substack teaches in much the same way. Like you can't really know how to, how to talk about someone's work until you reach a certain plateau where everyone is, you know, understanding, including the writer and with work in progress, that can be really tricky. Like, because sometimes we don't even know yet what is this thing and what is it trying to be about? So anyway, so that, that's one part. And then the other part that inspired that post Um, all of it, not just the aboutness, was that I had just come home from Mexico teaching a manuscript retreat where we, I had 13 participants, you know, who had their 20 page excerpts and synopses of their long form work in progress. And each, you know, participant had a dedicated workshop and then also received written feedback from everyone, including me. So it was a, you know, that's a, um, I know because you teach, you can relate that you're, when you do that in a very compressed period of time, so it was a seven day retreat where they turned in the work a couple of months in advance. So I really had been swimming in this work, Mm -hmm. Um, you know, to the point where when you do that, that all that work and the people who created it and the stories that are trying to be born is more real than anything else. Like it just becomes a world in itself and that's the world I was living in. And so I, what I wanted to do while it was all still really fresh is sit down and try to write it out. Um, Like I said that, you know, there's nothing, you know, that raises the stakes on one's own clarity than to try to put it into writing and let someone else read it and hope that it's helpful. And so that's, that's what I was doing there. Um, and trying to talk about aboutness, um, yeah, um, was to to be able to put it into language um, that a writer might be able to use to look at their own work. Well, thank you for writing the piece. And as I said, we're going to share it in the show notes. It's awesome. And one of those ones that I'll go back to read uh, more and more in the future. So Janine, thank you. And thank you for being on the show with us today. Thanks so much, Janine. Thank you so much for having me. Um, Yeah, it's a real honor.
Well, everyone, these are two episodes worth going back and listening to in their entirety if you haven't already heard them before, or even if you have. Uh, So we thank you for hanging with us this summer, and we're excited to be back next week with a fresh new episode hot off the mics. Yeah, that's right. And somehow we are through August already, where Brooke has been camping and paddleboarding and sunbathing, and I've been toiling away on this book proposal that I'm working on. And and there will be more to share about that in the months to come. Meanwhile, enjoy your last official week of summer, or if you're like me, it's all just a blur. Regardless, we thank you for listening and back next week to kick off a new year and a new season of Right Minded. 